0: In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. In the previous chapter, St. Paul urged Timothy to be a positive example of faithfulness and resolve despite his young age. Now the Apostle gives him examples of how to exercise his authority with patience and tact as he deals with older men, widows, and ruling elders. Each takes a different approach according to their stature and situation. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Thursday, February 16th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining the conversation this morning and to help us uh, lead, or lead us rather, through 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, the Reverend Hans Feeney, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Feeney. Welcome to Thy Strong Word.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you on. Now, I know that you've been on this and several other KFUO programs in the past, but since this is the first time I've had the pleasure of having you as a guest, I was wondering, would you take a few minutes just to share what God is doing through you and your ministry and perhaps through the saints at Prince of Peace?
1: Sure. So, uh, Prince of Peace in Crestwood, Missouri, is uh, we're a suburb of St. Louis. We're actually just right down the road from uh, the International Center there, so kind of in the uh, in the heart of institutional LCMS land. I've been here about two and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was a parish pastor in um, Illinois, just about an hour southwest of Chicago, right So of Joliet, for about ten years, and I was a pastor in. Out of seminary in Denver for two and a half years. So I'm from uh, Indiana. Uh, my wife's from Texas. Uh, God has blessed us with four sons who are uh, keeping us very, very busy as they're getting a bit older and uh, having more extracurricular activities and whatnot. So, but yeah, uh, God is is uh, being profoundly faithful to us. He's blessed us with a wonderful congregation uh, filled with saints uh, who hunger for His Word and rejoice to hear the gospel. So we are uh, profoundly blessed to be here in the the greater St. Louis area.
0: That's great. That's great, brother. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I also know that you're you're out, you're out there on uh, social media a little bit, and YouTube, you still doing all those things too?
1: Sure, yeah. So I run a YouTube channel called Lutheran Satire, uh, which is basically a series of comical videos intended to teach the Lutheran faith. I've been doing that, I think, uh, 12 years now. I started a series of videos I was doing in honor of our 10th anniversary, and I'm only about of the way through it by, by our 12th anniversary. So I don't put out videos as often as I would like. Um, they take, it's a bit of a time consuming process. So, um, uh, so I'm happy to get to them wh- uh, whenever I can. I've uh, been doing that for a while, uh, and I, I try to stay uh, relatively active on Twitter, uh, where I like to goof around and then uh, at a decent clip, uh, make a good, try to make a good confession of faith and um, get uh, sort of a greater Lutheran presence out there in a world that oftentimes, uh, for, for many people, the Lutheran church is kind of invisible and not really on their radar. So doing what I can to try to change that in, in social media land.
0: Yes, I I grew up not Lutheran and not knowing anything about the Lutherans. And then when I became Lutheran, um, you know, I was definitely drawn to our clear confessions and our liturgical worship practices. Uh, that clear testimony of Scripture is what drew me from, say, the Baptist uh, version of the faith. Uh, but one thing that I think we also get a little bit of a— uh, a reputation for is being a little stodgy too, right? A little stodgy German, that kind of thing. So that's why I also love uh, your Lutheran satire. As you say, it inserts some humor into some really true confessions. I certainly have my favorites of your videos. Folks, be sure to check out him on YouTube. Uh, Well, I tell you what, let's dive in. But before we do that, would you please be so kind to begin us in prayer?
1: Sure. Uh, In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we study your word today, as we look at these few verses from 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul's words to uh, a son in the faith and to a fellow brother pastor, we pray that you may bless us to understand your proclamation, to rejoice in the promises that you have given to us through your church. Uh, We pray that you may bless us to rejoice in the gift of the office of the ministry, just as we pray that you may bless pastors to carry out that vocation and that task faithfully, just as we pray that you may bless their sheep to receive it faithfully. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Well, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to Timothy. So as I said earlier, we find ourselves in chapter five, and we're going to go through the entire chapter, uh, but actually just a little bit, a couple of verses into chapter six. In fact, not even the whole second verse, just the first major part of it. Because as we've said before, you know, the, the divisions, the chapters, the versification, all of those things are not inspired. Uh, editors have done their best and generally do a pretty good job. But in this case, we're going to dive just a little bit into chapter six for context sake. But here we go. We're at the very beginning. Um, before I read any text, though, would you like to catch us up with maybe what was going on before this part to put it in context so people understand where Paul's argument is going?
1: Sure. So um, one of the things that Paul wants Timothy to understand uh, is that, you know, there's, Paul doesn't use this phrase, but as, as the phrase has been often uttered, where uh, Christ built his church, the devil builds his chapel. I think it's that, that quote is attributed to Martin Luther. So where the church is doing what the church is supposed to do and where the church is being what the church is supposed to be, you can always expect the devil to be doing his greatest work there because the devil's goal is the devil's goal is really not just to kind of aimlessly create chaos and hardship and despair in the world, but to create chaos and hardship and despair that lead people away from the gospel. So it's nat- it, you would naturally expect that the devil is going to be most active in the places where the gospel is, is preached. So in chapter four, uh, Paul warns Timothy that there are going to be those who are going to stir up division in the church, who will uh, attempt to lead people astray uh, by creating pointless controversies, uh, by teaching false doctrine. Um, Likewise, uh, he does warn uh, Timothy, especially towards the end of chapter four, uh, starting at verse 11 command and teach these things and then let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech in conduct in love and faith and in purity uh, until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures to exhortation to teaching so what Paul is really getting at there for Timothy is uh, you are young And whatever people can use against you, they will use against you. This is an important thing for for any man who is in the office of the ministry, any seminarians, uh, any men who are considering going into the ministry, um, is that uh, there's no one who has zero character traits. They're not even necessarily flaws, but just who has zero character traits that people can't cling to. So if you're too old, some people will say that you're not worth listening to because you're not with the times. If you're too young, people will say you don't have sufficient wisdom. Uh, if you're middle-aged, people will find some other excuse that you're too lukewarm, uh, whatever it might be. So Paul is saying to him here, uh, keep a firm watch on your doctrine, cling to what you know is true, and, and do your job. Devote yourself to the things that are your jobs, the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Uh, rejoice in the gifts that have been given to you and don't let those who seek to trouble you do so. Um, so it's basically the end at the end of chapter four Paul is essentially instructing Timothy on how to take care of himself in the church how to how to how to view conflicts, how to kind of take care of things from for himself in, in the midst of conflict in the church. and then as we get into chapter five, Paul then talks to him about how it is that he's to treat others in the context of conflict in the church.
0: Right. And so in chapter five, you know, he mentions in just the first two verses uh, several different types of people. So I'm going to read those and, and we'll look at them a little bit. So chapter five from the English Standard Version. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. In all purity. So even in this, he's going to spend a lot of time in widows coming up next, right? Spoiler alert. But right here, he begins this section by talking about, all right, so you're a younger guy, and but you still have authority. And and part of the authority of the ministers of Jesus is to be reprovers. But I guess there's a way to go about it. Don't rebuke an older man, right? Treat him as a father. Take us through these different categories. Oftentimes I've seen where pastors will understand, perhaps rightly, that they have this authority, but then where they get in trouble is that they don't really exercise it in in all the best ways. And of course, we've all failed in that in some way, don't get me wrong, but that's what he's trying to uh, make sure Timothy avoids.
1: Yeah, there, there's, I think, oftentimes a helpful diagnostic question for pastors to ask themselves in times of conflict. It's kind of a two-part question, and the first part is, uh, is this course of action right, or, or is what I'm saying right? Is my side of the conflict right? And then the other question is, is speaking about it this way beneficial? So there, there are plenty of things you can uh, say to people that are factually correct and theologically correct, but if the goal is to get them from point A to point B, very well may, may not be terribly effective at doing that. And so Paul is speaking. This is on the one hand, this is still obviously a universal command, but he's speaking it in a world that I think is much more ordered than our world is. Um, So kind of the irony of this verse now is uh, you know so do not rebuke an old, older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So in other words, speak to older men in the congregation the way you would with the level of respect and honor that you would give to your father. And for a lot of people in the world, that's less respect than they give to other people. <laughs> Anyone right. who's had kids knows this. Where where your kids talk back to you, and you go, "Well, that's not good." But it's but if you're talking to other adults that way, that's even that's even worse. So uh, I'd rather the, them
0: act out at home than act out right. in public, that kind of right. idea.
1: Right. Um, and, and while there is, I'm sure, some element of universal truth to that, the, the, in the ancient world, in the Roman world where Paul is writing this, the Greek and Roman world, the, the culture that has, uh, in which the gospel is now spreading, these are cultures of, of profound order. And where your social status is recognized, and where there's a certain amount of honor that is expected, and you also find this too in uh, in the Jewish world, where uh, amongst the Israelites, if you go back and you read your Old Testament, you'll see the um, the punishment for being a rebellious child, who, for example, would strike your father's death. So uh, it was a it was a world in which a great amount of emphasis was placed upon giving proper honor to your parents in a way that has largely been lost, I would say, in in our world today. So what, what Paul is getting at here is if, if your conflict, uh, or the challenge before you is in, if you have an older man who needs to be rebuked and all of us are sinners. So we all need to be rebuked. You're fooling yourself. If you think if you, if you've ever been rebuked by your pastor and you think he just has it out for me, he just doesn't like me. Uh, you should reevaluate, because the reality is, is that no one is ever going to get through life without ever once needing to be rebuked uh, by his pastor. It's As long as you have a sinful nature, it's going to be an issue. But Paul is saying, when you rebuke an older man, approach him with the honor and dignity you would show to a father so that he can more clearly hear what it is that you are saying. So you know, if anyone who's ever d- seen uh, adult children interacting with their elderly parents, you recognize that there is almost a kind of reversal of the child and parent, uh, arrangement, especially as, as parents get into their senior years, um, where there's still honor and there's still respect, but you have to kind of take care of them a little bit more than you would have, uh, when you were younger. So that this could very well be a part of what's going on here, but don't, um, Uh, But don't rebuke an older man in the way that you would someone who is below you in the kind of social status or in the honor status of of Paul's world at the time. Don't rebuke. um, So, you know, in the same way that if I uh, that you I'm not I'm never going to yell at someone someone else's kids, you know, but if I'm uh, at the at the park with my children and someone some kids are doing something that they're not that they're certainly not allowed to do, I very well may speak up and say something about it but I'm not going to to speak to an older gentleman uh, in that that same way, because there's a difference in social standing and and honor. So that's really kind of what Paul is getting at here uh, in this this first bit, talking about uh, older men treating them as fathers.
0: Now, it doesn't connect exactly to rebuking, but I had a little bit of this on the inverse, and that is when I had first become a pastor and I was you know, teaching my, uh, mostly farming congregation, uh, about confession. And, and there were no burdens being, um, no consciences being burdened. Pardon me. I was just explaining that we know we have not abandoned private confession as a, as a pastor, I'm available. If you'd like to come talk and it doesn't have to be formal, you know, all the things we typically say. And I had one gentleman and I think he was mostly joking, but he said, you know, I'll, I'll be darned if I'm going to come and confess my sins to someone as young as my kids.
1: And of course this
0: would be more along what Paul was encouraging Timothy in the previous chapter. But with that said, you know, that's, that's sort of what is unfortunate because we also have the opposite side of it. And so my response, which I hope was appropriate, is I just explained, well, you know, at some point your, your physicians are going to be as young as your kids. The police officer who pulls you over is going to be as young as your kids. At some point, people who have authority are going to be as young as your kids. But with that said, what's often lost, which is what Paul is teaching here, which is what you just so eloquently explained, is that if you do find yourself in a position of authority over someone who has a, a cultural or social standing that's higher than you, it doesn't remove your authority But it certainly affects the way you should exercise it. And he goes beyond older men and treating them as fathers and even talks about younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. So really, there's a a patience intact in the way that you exercise your authority, regardless of age, just about, you know, dealing with people with them in the context of who they are and their situation.
1: Yeah, that there is um, the way that we should approach things is that everyone who is a part of our congregation, everyone who's a part of the Christian community, these are our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, that we're a family, that we're one in Christ. And, and this is a very important point that the scriptures make over and over again, that you are more brothers with your fellow Christians than you are with your uh, genetic brothers who don't share your faith. Uh, that, the, the women, that if your mother is not a Christian, the women in your church who, who teach you what it means to be pious and godly, who pray for you, uh, who, who help lead you into the arms of Christ, they are more your mothers, more your mother than even uh, your biological mother is, because the church is eternal in that sense. And so, um, so the way we, what should, so this certainly isn't, um, Paul obviously directs these words to Timothy and, uh, it's a charge for all pastors, but really it's a charge for all Christians is that we should treat our, our fellow congregation members. We should treat our fellow believers the way that we would treat family because they are family.
0: That's a really important point. And when we do that, we also like, you would also say <laughs> rebuke for lack of a better word, a family member, not because you don't care, but because you do care because you do love them, which is why I think some oftentimes we, we find ourselves treading a little bit more carefully with people that we care about uh, and, and not because we don't want them to get mad and disagree so much as we want them to really hear what we're saying without getting defensive. And so really, this is good advice in general.
1: Well, I was going to say that uh, I grew up with brothers, and so there's probably another helpful clarification here, which is when Paul says this, to treat people as brothers and and sisters, I have a sister as well, Uh, we fought a bunch growing up, as, as all family members do, that the way we want to approach this is that you rebuke your brothers the way that you do when they have picked a fight with someone else and they're kind of in the wrong but no one hits your brother but you, you know, kind of that that principle for anyone who grew up having siblings, you know how that works, where where you're trying to talk them down off of the ledge to make the situation right. So um, I think for those who grew up with siblings where you if you guys were just pounding each other and throwing Nintendo controllers at each other's faces or whatever it may have been, uh, that this this Paul's admonition to treat younger men as brothers uh, or younger women as sisters, for example, Manifest a bit differently than we might have experienced it in our own life.
0: Let's add in widows, because in the next verses, as we add in widows, he gets really specific about some of this. In fact, this is most of this chapter. um, So I'm going to begin with just the first chunk of it, so to speak. I'm going to read verses three through eight. Here we go. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is a true widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith. And it is and is worse than an unbeliever. So at least two different people being talked about uh, widows or maybe three. So widows who are truly widows and genuinely need help widows who have children who should be seeking, I suppose, assistance from them and then families who have people in these situations and whether or not they're taking care of them. So honor widows who are truly widows. Um, that takes a bit of, I guess, maturity and judgment on Timothy's part. Uh, but also, you know, it really sets a distinction that there are people who may have lost their husband, but at least as Paul describes here, are not truly widows. How can we reconcile that?
1: Yeah. So I think a, a, something that's helpful is, again, to remember the context of the ancient world in which Paul is writing. Um, So today with, you know, social security programs, with retirement savings, things of that nature, with life insurance, uh, if a woman tells you that she's a widow, what you generally presume is that she's lonely. So she was married to a guy for a long time, but then he died and now she doesn't have anyone to spend her time with. But you don't automatically presume that she's destitute. Whereas in in Paul's day, in Christ's day, that's certainly the case. We see this in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus raises the son of the widow of a town called Nain, where um, Luke makes sure to point out that she's a widow and this is her only son that has died. And the, the point of that is it's not just that this woman is sad, it's that she's now destitute. She has no one to care for her because in the ancient world, sons cared for their parents, or for, for their parents in particular, their mothers, uh, if they were widowed. So when Paul is drawing this distinction between widows and true widows, I think just simply what he's getting at is... Um, those women who don't have children, and thus don't have anyone to take them in, are in a position of um, of severe uh, need. So the church is always going to have limited funds and limited resources and limited means. Uh, And so the church should therefore aim to provide the most for those who have the greatest need. I think that's all Paul is really doing here is he's saying this is not just simply a matter of if a woman's husband has died, but if she has no one to care for her, she needs to go to the top of the list. Whereas uh, widows who have children or grandchildren that can care for them and take them in and feed them and clothe them, um, they... They have they have other people to provide for them and the, and those people should be encouraged to do that. That's kind of the other thing. Uh, a question that I that I oftentimes ask folks who will come by church asking for financial assistance is where's your family? That's a helpful diagnostic question to kind of figure out what's going on in their lives because on the one hand, yes, you would want to help people who are in need, but at the same time, you also don't want to help. Uh, You don't, don't want to put family members in a position where they feel like they can safely abdicate their responsibilities and just abandon their parents knowing that someone else is going to take care of them because you're putting them in a position of spiritual peril if they do that.
0: I'm glad you brought that up as an example because that's precisely what I was about to ask is how can we perhaps extend this to those very situations you mentioned? I had a, my supervising pastor when I was a vicar, actually. Uh, he told me that God calls us to be soft-hearted, not soft-headed. Uh, and this opinion was developed over years of being taken advantage of. And not that we aren't willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, but there is this unfortunate reality that there are those who would take advantage of the church's limited ability to care for people. And so I just wondered if that was applicable when he says honor widows who are truly widows. With that said, I would argue that if you would agree, hopefully you would also agree that that's a very careful distinction that's sometimes sometimes flat out impossible for us to make. Sometimes we just have to take the chance and err towards the side of hospitality.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the right approach. Is that, um, is that you? It's always better to be more generous uh, and always better and always better to feed uh, mouths that don't need to be fed than to not feed mouths that. Do need to be fed, but at the same time, it is it is also necessary for the church to recognize. You know, if we have ten thousand dollars budgeted for uh, you know human care and for to feed the poor and care for the sick, whatever it might be, you want to do some amount of due diligence to figure out whether or not you're actually helping the people that that need to be helped.
0: Very true. So we see here, he says. Uh, They let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. This is pleasing. Makes sense. Um, And then he makes that distinction between the widow who's left all alone, which you explained. um, Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. What I find interesting about this part is that he's saying don't wait till people are in these situations and then try to explain to them what God's will is. You know, this should be part of your teaching the whole counsel of God, this should be part of your ministry especially in this particular social environment where this is coming up time and again, you know, don't just surprise them. Make sure people know that, you know, this is something that you're going to need to do at some point to take care of those to whom, you know, God has given you to take care of, especially members of your own household.
1: Yeah, uh, Christians typically do not make great decisions caught flat-footed, so in many ways the teaching life of the church should be uh, should ha- have very much as a present part of it, uh, the idea that you prepare people for for these things and how to respond when these things happen.
0: Well, then we have some more uh, distinctions, I suppose, being made starting in verse nine, and I'm going to read through verse sixteen. This is continues to be about widows. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, or has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they can learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Brother, it looks like he's expanding on this thought. I guess what really needs to be unpacked would be this enrollment. Uh, what is he talking about when he says let uh, you know a widow enroll?
1: Yeah, there's it's a bit mysterious. We don't get a whole lot of detail about this, but the context seems to be indicating that there is basically a, a sort of a registry of of widows uh, on the list of the, these are the women that the church is helping. So it, Paul is trying to help Timothy essentially prioritize this list. And, and he's ultimately saying, okay, so if you have women who are elderly, uh, who are 60 years of age and, and older, we can debate about whether that's elderly now, but that's, uh, that's for another discussion. I am certainly
0: during that time. Right.
1: <laughs> so, uh, that, uh, so let them be enrolled having been the wife of one husband. So if you have women who are serial, uh, marriers and divorcers and and things of that nature uh, that this is that these are not the, these are not the faithful Christians of, uh, that they are seeking to help um, and so again you have limited resources uh, you feed your family first that's really ultimately the the point that Paul is trying to get across here um, and uh, so protect them preserve them uh, give them food uh, and and shelter. Uh, so that they can do the work that God has given them to do, which is praying for the saints of the congregation, serving God uh, with their prayers. Whereas with with younger women, I, I, again, I think this it's a kind of important to remember the, the context of Paul's world where, you know, the, the concept of sort of consecrated virgins or women who you were know, making vows to be kind of temple women was a prominent thing uh, in the ancient world. And it seems like what Paul is saying here is, is not that they're asking women to take vows of celibacy necessarily, but um, that if women are being treated as, uh, as, as widows, and then they leave that widow life behind to get married because they were young widows and they want to get married again and have children, it's going to look to the world as though they departed from God and chose the flesh. And uh, that you don't want to give that uh, give that impression. So, um, so if they're younger widows, have them become wives again. Let let them become wives again. Uh, because, and, and I do like um, when he talks about in verse thirteen. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers but gossips and busybodies. That there there is there is something kind of to this where uh, there's an age at which it's not terribly safe to become. A, um, a true widow. And uh, so if you're younger, you got to keep yourself busy, otherwise you're just going to go around stirring up trouble and gossiping and talking about people. And it, it just just kind of does seem by experience. Um, you know, if you were to look at who were the biggest gossips in congregations, it's typically not the ladies who are a few years away from death. <laughs> they, they are, they tend to have their eyes much more focused on Jesus and and make far more time for prayer than they do for uh, than they do for gossip.
0: So they figured um, it out by then, they, right? They, they figured usually it out by over. then. They figured out it doesn't <laughs> yeah. work
1: by then. You know, yeah. In the, in the same perfect. way that young men are are more going to be more inclined to pursue foolish lustful desires than you know men who are in their in their last years are because they've figured out what actually matters and what's important. So the, so I think this is what kind of what Paul is getting at here is that if you have women who are going to stay widows, then tr- treat them like the widows. And if you have other women that have kind of dipped a toe into widowdom but um, have every means of getting out of it, encourage them to do so and encourage them to fulfill the vocation, that God has given them by giving them uh, fruitful wombs of having children and managing their households.
0: I know this isn't quite the focus that he has here, but there's also a sense of um, permission, I suppose, that he's giving. Because when you have younger widows, and they, and they are widows, there can, and from my own experience walking alongside people in this position, they can often feel guilty about continuing on into marrying Um, someone else if you know being eligible and of course being eligible for marriage today i think also expands culturally someone who might be in their 50s then wouldn't really get remarried but now someone in their 50s and 60s could get remarried uh and and not be a sort of a social uh, problem with that or a cultural issue with that so i i see here also an encouragement that says you know if you're able to get remarried in a godly way of course Uh, do that and, and, and then take care of one another. And then that alleviates the burden on the church.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to be a widow for 60 years. Uh, you know, so that, that's kind of the challenge of the, of the thing is that if you're young enough to, to kind of restart your life or to, or to pick up the pieces and move on instead of kind of moving into something else entirely, then you should probably do that because that's where you're going to be content. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you know folks have ever known um, couples that'll get married. So, you know, where one of, you'll have a, a widow and a widower, and you know, they'll get married in their uh ancient days, you know, so they're they meet at a nursing home or whatever it might be, and you know, and they're 80 years old and they get married. And they love each other and, and they're very happy with each other, but then it is a bit odd for the whole family because you know, then one of them dies and you kind of got these divided families and stuff and Uh, And no one quite knows what the relationship is between the kids and this stepfather or stepmother who came into the picture really late. And it's so it's it's easier to, for lack of a better term, to kind of run out the clock uh, if you're, you know, if you're widowed at 80. If you're widowed at 25, that's too long to run out the clock. You got to you got to do something something with it. my kid my kids play basketball at school and uh, my middle school ones um, they're at the age where they don't have a shot clock and so when it gets towards the end of the game and you're up by a bit that you know they really kind of slow things down but what you learn is you can't really run out the clock at that age because you'll just end up turning the ball over <laughs> so they're, they're not quite good <laughs> enough so there's something kind of to that Of if you're too young to run out if you're too young to run out the clock you're eventually going to turn the ball over you're going to give yourself over into sin and temptation. And so you should put yourself in the position where, where the things that will keep you from giving into sinful behavior, uh, where that's what your life is, is built around. Serving a husband, serving your children, rather than serving the gossiping desires of your heart and things of that nature.
0: Well, folks, speaking of running out the clock, we're up against the clock for our break. But don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Feeney and I will continue with 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll see you on the other side.
1: Take a look around
0: you. Look closely. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Hans Feeney, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Folks, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to say hello, you can direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, and you can send me a message there. But you know what? I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And thank you for telling others about thy strong word. You can tell your friends and family that they can listen to the program on the air, on demand at KFUO.org, or even through the KFUO app. We can also be heard on your favorite podcasting platform. All right, now, Pastor Feeney, we are back into our text. And you know, we had just been trudging through what is Paul uh pardon, yeah, what is Paul talking about when he's giving these very specific I guess requirements for widows to be able to receive the benefits of being taken care of by people in the church, but it's not so hard line. He's really just giving guidance for if you are able to have an outs- a resource to take care of yourself, then you should make use of that because we certainly want to take care of our own. But there's also something to be said about you know taking care of ourselves too. Uh, Anything else before I read on? Because when we get into verse 17 and the rest of the chapter, uh, it shifts a little bit to something, well, frankly, completely different. Uh, so, anything else about widows that we want to make sure that the listeners know about?
1: No, yeah, I think I think what you said is great. That um, th- these are not hard and fast rules, but just general principles to follow. So use the so the the Holy Spirit uh, transforms your heart, and it and and the and the Holy Spirit gives you holy wisdom, and so use that holy wisdom uh, when it comes to making the decisions that you make, and recognize uh, people have a sinful nature. Uh, order and structure the church in such a way that it hinders uh, the devil's opportunity to take advantage of that. Amen to that. All
0: right, we're going to read chapter 5 now, but we're going to go from verse 17 through 24. Here we go. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Okay, perhaps I could have broken that up because we have two different thoughts going on here. But we have the famous, the laborer deserves his wages, frequently mentioned probably during uh, 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 compensation discussions for pastors. But, brother, explain to us a little bit what he means when he says elder or presbyter here. Uh, We we think in the LCMS, elders as, you know, like laymen who are assisting the pastor in his duties. Perhaps in the Baptist and other churches, they might call them deacons, which is also not quite what a deacon is in the scripture. So I think it'd be helpful to define some of these these roles.
1: Yeah, that is one of the weird things that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod does. And I'm not quite sure of the history of when we started doing that, but I wish we would stop. Because when you see the term elders in the New Testament context in particular, it means pastors. Uh, so it's it's really confusing for guys who get elected to their church's board of elders, and then they read the Bible and they go, "Oh, this is this is my job." And you go, "Oh, actually, no, that's not <laughs> that's not your job. You're supporting the pastor in doing that, uh, but your position is a bit different." So, elders here means pastors. So, let pastors who rule well—in uh, other words, uh, pastors who are faithfully preaching the Word, who are faithfully giving out the gifts of God—be considered worthy of double honor. Uh, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. When And then when Paul says, for the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. He's ultimately talking about uh, compensating them. So um, there's a really simple principle to this, which is uh, that if as a as a pastor, if you're not able to do the job often, you're not typically able to do the job very well. Uh, if you don't have time for prayer and study, your sermons are not going to be terribly rooted in the scriptures. Uh, if you don't have time to visit your people, you generally will not be as good of a shepherd to them as if you do have time uh, to visit them. So uh, so that ideally, this this doesn't mean that things can always be this way, of course, but ideally a pastor should earn his living from the church. Um he should be receiving enough pay from the church where he is able uh, to, to put food on the table. Uh, th- this is sort of an odd thing to me about um, the Mormons, for example. The Mormons like to boast of the fact that they their clergy are not paid, as though th- as though it's somehow a shameful thing that a man would get paid by his congregation. Um, but of course, if you actually need guys to, to be full-time theologians, uh, rather than just repeating what it is that, uh, that your church leaders have told them to say, then you actually need men who have the time to do that. Um, and so it's not a dishonorable thing. It's It's not a sign of greed for a pastor to be paid by his congregation. It, of, cor- of course, there's a certain, you know, there's an amount that he could get paid that would certainly be shameful. And uh, if he's making far more money than the members of his congregation, that's generally not a good sign as to the way that that things are going. Uh, but in order for a, pa- uh, uh, but so pastors may know the scriptures better than their lay people. Uh, they may be uh, in, in many cases, but certainly not all, they may be more devoted to uh, the word of god than their than their members are Uh, but the one thing that the pastors have in common with their members that's not in any way shape or form different different is that we both definitely die if we don't eat (laughs) so if we don't have food if we don't have shelter uh if we are not able to get our daily bread uh then we're not going to be terribly good at proclaiming the gospel because dead mouths aren't terribly great at speaking words so, uh, churches should should seek to uh, compensate their pastors in a way that they are able to live.
0: Growing up down south and not in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, many pastors were or what we would call colloquially tent makers, kind of like Paul, and you know, that certainly we could spend a whole hour or a whole week on just this topic and what Paul says about it in all the various places. But I bring it up to say, you know, you have guys who are, say, electricians during the week and they do their pastor thing on the weekend. And the pastor that I'm thinking of in my head, I remember he told them, he said, well, you know, I obviously want to be dedicated to the church. But if you can't pay me, then this is what I have to do, which I guess makes sense. But then the people would get upset if he's not available at a moment's notice or if he's not available, you know, to come and do something in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. And, and so he has to explain, well, I'm not. So really, it is a very practical thing. And as you pointed out, and I just don't want people to get misunderstand here, um, we are talking about if you're able. There are certainly situations, many situations, more than you would think, where pastors are not either not taking a salary, or they're just living in a parsonage, or they're taking a salary that's, frankly, beneath the efforts that they provide, but they do so out of love for their people. But at the same time, I've also heard, and I know you have too, brother, people say things like, well, he should just be doing it for the sake of the gospel. And and that's just, it's an unfair dichotomy that really puts pastors in an awkward position, which also makes it very difficult for us to ever, um, how can we say, advocate for ourselves.
1: Yeah, there there is, I think, too, a kind of anti-professionalism to those types of comments, as though, you know, oftentimes you get them from people who who think that the you know that that teaching, volunteering to teach Sunday school without pay, is somehow equivalent to preparing a sermon, equivalent to visiting uh, all of your members, equivalent to studying the scriptures, uh, all, all of these things. So, um, so there there t- does oftentimes, as I say, tend to be a kind of well, I can, I could do that just as well as you could. So therefore I, it's, it's shameful to me that, sh, that you actually want to get paid for that full time. But for the most part, I don't think that's, I think for most Christians, they don't, they don't view things that way. Most Christians want to be able to pay their pastors uh, a living and a fair wage. Uh, obviously you get, um, there are congregations that are able to do that easily, there are congregations that have no realistic chance of doing that whatsoever, and then there are, I think, oftentimes a lot of congregations in between that could be that but are unwilling to be that and and need to hear this uh, word of encouragement and rebuke.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is no judgment on any particular congregation, just you know, playing out the conversation as we see it here in Scriptures. Now, he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, that is in sharp contrast, at least I'm reading it in sharp contrast, to the more tactful isn't the word, but the more, you know, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Um, younger men, as brothers, the widows, treat them, you know, deftly. But here it's like if this person is given the position of being a public, Teacher of the law and the gospel then uh, and they're in persistent sin, right, and that's another key word, persistent sin, then that's something that is a shame upon the entire church, and they need to be rebuked in such a way that people know that their leaders are not above god 's law
1: yeah, I think what what Paul is talking about here are are cases in which what may have initially been private sins have become public sins if they all weren't weren't just public from the very beginning. And so, if people refuse to turn, if they refuse to repent, your actions in the church teach. So, if I tell if I tell people in my congregation, for example, uh, that you uh, that you need to be instructed in in what uh, what we teach, you need to be instructed in the gospel before you're able to receive the sacrament rightly and safely to receive it for your benefit, not for your judgment. But then I just never ask anyone who they are when they come up to commune. Uh, My actions will contradict the words I have confessed. And as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. People will believe that what you actually believe is the thing you did rather than the thing you said. So when, so if you are, if you want people to know, no, actually it really does matter that you turn from your sin. And if you don't turn from your sin, you will be condemned. And if you want people to understand, I'm telling you what God has said, and I'm not trying to tickle the ears of man. They won't believe you if people who are publicly in the midst of sin get to remain in sin without any actual response from the church. So you have a responsibility in the life of the church when when people persist in sin to rebuke them in such a way that the rest of the congregation sees it and learns we actually mean the things uh, that we're saying. So when you when you lack this kind of church discipline in congregations, it's not in any way, shape, or form surprising because I think you very much lack this today. It's a very uncommon thing to see church discipline carried out in a public manner in congregations these days, and the a major uh, problem that's caused by that is that people just don't take the church seriously when we say that something is sinful. It's, okay, yeah, you'll say that, but I'm just going to keep doing it and you'll be fine with it. And if you're fine with it, that must mean that God is is fine with it. So that we view sin sort of like getting a speeding ticket uh, as opposed to utter loss and separation from God. And so when we deal with things publicly, uh, that we, we instill that healthy, godly fear of the law in people that I don't want to be separated from God the way that this person has through his, through his impenitence, through his persistence in sin.
0: It says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So even though we have a rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may stand in fear, even though we have also, of course, this requirement, don't admit a charge against a pastor except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you have these rules. But on top of all of that, he says, listen, you also have to do this in such a way that doesn't prejudge. And there's two ways to prejudge. There's one because he's speaking to a pastor. There's one to say, well, there's kind of this, um, I don't know what line we have. You know how there's like a thin red line for firemen, thin blue line for uh, for police. I don't know what our line would be. White, maybe black. I don't know. Anyway, you have this sort of brotherhood where you're going to put the best construction on it to the point where you always get your buddy off the hook. But or there's the other side too, where you are hastily prejudging and you and you want to uh, condemn someone without, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better word, a fair trial here. So I think he is very, of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he makes sense, but he's being very explicit here that while discipline and even public charges are sometimes necessary, all of this has to be done in the context of Christian love and with the the mind of God to the best that we can do it.
1: Yeah. So pastors are, on the one hand, I think we're allowed to have favorite members because uh, John constantly refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved which it's not to mean that John that Jesus didn't love the other disciples but that he had a, a special relationship with john or kind of a unique bond with him and you know pastors are human and and you're there's always going to be people that you connect with more than other people and bond with more than other people and you know some people uh open up to you and others don't some people are much more guarded and it's a little bit harder to bond with them that way and so um so while you may love everyone in a pastoral sense equally you don't like everyone the same some people you just you just click with better than others uh, likewise, um, some people may go through struggles with you in the congregation that you don't go through with others. And so you have kind of a deeper in the trenches bond with them. So what, what Paul is urging here is though is that, is that when you are carrying out, uh, the disciplined life of the congregation, when you're rebuking people, when you're restoring people, when you're determining who needs to eat and who doesn't. Uh, don't do anything based on partiality. Don't do anything based on prejudging. Don't make decisions based on um, on your own kind of personal connection to people, but with with what they need and recognizing that that God, in fact, does love all of these people equally and cherishes them and wants them to be dealt with fairly.
0: Then, as a former and recovering Baptist, uh, my favorite part. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, My blessed grandmother, who's now with the Lord, she grew up in sort of a teetotaling church body of various church bodies. But she always had a little wine in the fridge, but that was just for the sake of your stomach, you understand. Right. (laughs) And so we have this sort of permission to drink. And um, of most of the teetotaling uh, Christians that I know, let's just say they have a lot of stomach issues. Right. But what's being, what is actually being said here though? This isn't, this isn't sort of a secret getting around prohibition, uh, text. I mean, this, this means something, probably something personal to Timothy.
1: Yeah. So the, the Timothy here seems to have some, uh, I would imagine this is probably some kind of anxiety issues. Um, typically when you, for a lot of people, when they struggle with anxiety, which a lot of folks do in the church. Um, because you have authority, but you don't have power, it's a kind of a weird position to be in where, where you have to lead people, but only through the power of convincing them and the power of persuasion. And, um, and likewise, people can, can punch you really hard and you can't punch back. Uh, so it, it creates a, a difficult and challenging power dynamic that can really, really riddle pastors with anxiety. Uh, and, and you're, when your guts kind of eat you alive. And so I think that's probably what's going on with Timothy here. And so Paul is giving him some, um, uh, his, his kind of halfway, halfway trained medical advice. Uh, I think we can certainly say that this statement is divinely inspired, uh, in the sense that it's a part of the scriptures. Uh, but I don't know that we can extrapolate from that, that this is, uh, proper medical advice uh, for someone who may be dealing with stung, uh, with anxiety induced gastrointestinal issues. Um, so if but, I'm a little
0: nervous uh, climbing that pulpit, if I take a swig from my flask under my cassock, then I just have to point people to this verse, right? Hey, guys, I'm a little nervous. I suppose nervous. you, can, you just... can
1: give that a shot and, and see how it goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so no, I, I think this is this is just a, a little something to help kind of calm your nerves. Uh, and, and it's a great example of, uh, how things, how God has given us things that are gifts, even if those things can be abused. So just as um uh, just as sexuality is a gift that God's given us that can be abused and turned into perversion so alcohol is a great and wonderful gift It can be turned into drunkenness and turned into something uh, wicked but uh, in and of itself it is uh, it's a great gift that God has given to us that has has many benefits uh, and this certainly seems to be one of them
0: well i've been really enjoying our conversation but we're getting close to the end of the program so i do want to make sure we get the first few verses of chapter 6 in because he says here, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, I realize it's a fairly unfair for me to say, all right, we have four minutes left. Explain this. <laughs> but this is going to be a <laughs> right. text where um, the Christianity is going to be attacked by the people who do not read deeply, do not understand history and uh, or or cultural contexts and, and want to use this against us. So I suppose as best as, as anyone could, maybe just give us a little bit of, of how we can think better about this, and then I'll encourage people to dig in with their pastors.
1: Yeah, so slavery is a is a pretty complicated concept in the scriptures. And part of it, part of understanding these verses properly is is also understanding history and understanding that what you're looking at with American chattel slavery uh, that we you know, typically associate around the Civil War and things of that nature is really of a, of a different character than the slavery we're dealing with in um, in in Paul's day, where what he's talking about here is kind of more along the lines of, imagine, imagine the way that this is how debt worked, is that um, you bought a car that you couldn't afford, and so you had to go work at the car dealership until you paid it off. Uh, or you had to work for the car dealer until you paid it off. That's kind of the concept of slavery that we're looking at here. And um, a common thing that, that Paul is t- talks about in the New Testament is that while Christ has set all of us free, and while Christ has made slaves and masters brothers and equal with each other through his blood, Um, the purpose of the gospel is not to give people an excuse to cast off their responsibilities to each other too. So it's kind of an important thing to remember here that, um, that if you were trying to use uh, Christianity as an excuse to escape slavery, uh, that's kind of more associated with trying to use Christianity as an excuse to escape your debts, trying to use it as an as an excuse. For example, to um, be like if you went to your bank and you said, "Well, when I was baptized, I was I died to sin and was made alive again. So i I took part in Christ's death, so I'm dead, so I don't owe you any money a- anymore." So what what Paul is getting at here is that under this earthly life, don't use the faith as an excuse to reject um, and to cast off your your earthly bonds, but rather if you ha- if you have been given the cross of slavery to bear, bear it faithfully. Uh, treat your masters with honor and respect. And, uh, and if you have a believing master, recognize that you are brothers in Christ before you are even of a different social order and social status. So I think that's kind reminds, of sort of what we're getting at
0: there. I agree. It reminds me of a the, one of my favorite scenes from uh, Old Brother, Where Art Thou? And right. they get baptized <laughs> yes. in the river. Yeah, and Pete says, well, the preacher says he absolved us. And Everett says, well, for him, not for the law. Right, yeah. And he says, but there was witnesses that seen us dis- the redeemed. And he says, well, that's not the issue, Delmar. Even if you put square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi is a little more hard-nosed.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so that's living Living the Christian life is... Um, again, so I think a good modern equivalent, yeah, would, would be if you are, um, yeah, if you're in debt or if you're, you know, if you're working a low level job at a company and and you're, and you become a Christian and you say, well, because I'm equal, because I, God has made everyone equal and through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, I should get paid as much as my boss does now, as the, you know, the CEO of the company does now. And what Paul is saying is don't be concerned with with these earthly arrangements be concerned with with fulfilling whatever task you've been given and carrying whatever cross you've been given to carry uh, and doing so faithfully and confessing the name of jesus through your faithful work
0: amen brother we're gonna have to leave it there folks i'd like to thank my guest this morning the reverend hans feeney pastor of prince of peace lutheran church in crestwood missouri pastor thanks so much for being on the show i can't wait to have you on again my pleasure Tomorrow we end the week by finishing up chapter 6 and we'll actually be bringing St. Paul's first letter to Timothy to an end. So tune in as Paul turns to Timothy and tells him how he must resist false prophets, including protecting against false doctrine himself, and how he needs to stay true to the traditions and teaching that was passed down to him. Monday, we'll dive right back in with the Apostle's second letter to Timothy, so don't miss that. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.